Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. morning. I know some of you guys were traveling over spring break and uh, come back maybe in the hopes that spring might have arrived and it hasn't. Uh, I know that because I have one neighbor who spends the majority of the year outside in their backyard and their lawn furniture is still under a tarp all wrapped up. I use him as my true groundhog. When that dude uncovers his lawn furniture, spring and summer are on their way. And I drove past his house this morning. I'm like, ah, geez. Lord, please bring it soon. If you're new to our church, my name is Dave. It's my privilege to have served as lead pastor here for now going on 21 years. And uh, I feel really um, revitalized by the sermon series we're going through. Uh, You know, it may seem sometimes from where you're sitting that the sermons come from the preacher, but they actually come from God, and for hours and hours longer than you will spend listening, I feel like God is doing that work in my heart, and somehow through this series, he has really rekindled my love of study of his word. And it's just been exciting for me because... it. It's like I'm rediscovering the joy of reading scripture and then preaching, and I receive so much more than you. (laughs) I just feel bad because in all that study, there's so much I could say that I don't say in the interest of time and not putting you all to sleep, but I feel like I'm so rich by the the time Sunday morning comes because of all that's important to me. So I just, I wanted to share with you how grateful I am to God for this series because it has really rekindled in me a love for this ministry, and for the power of God's word over our hearts. This message in particular, this text, has been an important one for me for a very long time because I think it was one of the passages that God used most powerfully when I was a young Christian to get me serious about the role I play in this world for the sake of Jesus Christ. The title of the message is Salt and Light. And again, like I say all the time, uh, I am incredibly uncreative when it comes to sermon titles. Am I doing something wrong here? Oh, the Wi-Fi is down. Okay. We'll just go old school for now. That means instead of looking up there, you're going to have to really listen to me. Are we good? The text is Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. And here's what it says. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works 
and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We're working through our way through a series called Radical, and it's about the Sermon on the Mount. It's a famous sermon which Jesus gave, and what a gift it is to us that an entire sermon which Jesus himself preached is recorded for us in this way. And so I've just been really getting into like hearing what Jesus said straight from the heart of God to us. And he opens his message with a list of eight qualities of the person that God blesses. And that's important because I think most of us, we yearn for something from God, don't we? I mean, have you ever just felt like, where is God anyway lately in my life? I feel so hungry for him. I want something from him. I yearn for blessing, for joy, for love, for approval from him. Um, But sometimes our experience is God feels a little bit like maybe our earthly father. We're waiting for the approval, and it doesn't come. And it's frustrating, and he feels far away. The good news of what Jesus preached in the beginning of his sermon is that God does not want to withhold his blessing. He desires, in fact, he delights to give it. But here's something we have to remember, and I've said it before. I'm going to say it again and again for as long as God gives me the pulpit of this church. God's love is always unconditional, isn't it? That's one thing like the sun rising and the sun setting. You can count on it every single day in your worst, foulest moment of betrayal and sin. You can still count on this. The love of God is always unfailingly available to us. It's inexhaustible. It is renewed every day. It is promised regardless of our conduct. God's love for us is the way that a good father or a good mother loves their children. Regardless of their child's conduct or what they've done to deserve it, the love is given freely as a gift. But here's the other thing you need to know. God's blessing is not unconditional. That sense of his nearness, his approval, his delight over us, that sense of joy that a father feels beaming with pride over his son or daughter, that is not an unconditional thing. We sometimes wish it were, but that's not the way any family relationship works. Parents, raise your hand if you give blessing and approval and reward to your children no matter what they do. Did you just kick your brother in the face? I bless you. You're a good boy. I love that you do that. That you have the, We don't do that. Oh, you stole money from my purse? I'm so glad you have something to spend, little Johnny. What would happen to our children if no matter what they did, they still received our blessing and our approval? Is that love or is that cruelty? Because let me tell you, for a child, that is awfully confusing if no matter what I do, I can count on my parents' love, but can I count on their blessing no matter what? And the idea behind the Beatitudes is this. God's love is always secure, but his blessing comes to those whose hearts and posture and attitude line up with what he says is pleasing to him. And that's important because I think we live in times where the general flavor, the atmosphere is, God, you have to be good to us all the time. We don't really talk much about whether we have to be good to God. It's as if we believe that everything good from God is unconditional. It is our right, regardless of our conduct. 
And God says, no. It's time for us to remember that God, like any father, has standards, and he has a heart, and he has a character, and he delights when his children line up with his heart and his character. That his blessing and approval are not guaranteed no matter what, but they come to those whose hearts are aligned with his. And Jesus goes to great lengths to describe the kind of heart which God delights in. And in these Beatitudes, as we just went over them, he gives us a list of the kinds of things that mark the person who Jesus calls blessed. It's a person who acknowledges their spiritual poverty. They don't come to God saying, I deserve anything from you. They say, I have nothing to offer and trade. If you love me, if you're kind to me, it will be because you're a good father, not because I have earned all those things from you. It describes a person who grieves, mourns over their own sinfulness. They're not defiant about it. Don't say, well, if anyone treated you like this, you would act like this too. They say, I grieve over the sin that caused me pain. And I grieve over the sin that I commit in response. Jesus calls blessed the person who is meek and gentle, even in those situations where retaliation is justified. Where everyone who's sane would agree with you, you should have, you should have struck back. How dare they? You are justified in being angry back, and yet you remain meek and gentle. God blesses the heart that hungers and thirsts for his righteousness. God blesses the heart that shows mercy not only to the hurt or the hurting, but even to those who are hurtful. That's hard, isn't it? I find that to be one of the most challenging of the Beatitudes, is to show mercy even to the hurtful. God blesses the heart that pursues him with undivided focus. God blesses the heart that actively works for peace with both God and with man. And God blesses the heart that remains true to him, even at the cost of persecution. Now, I'm not suggesting that we have to do all these things, but what he's saying is if this is not the natural inclination of your heart, then the real spiritual work is not to mimic or to imitate these things. These aren't given as a way of saying, here's how you fake it till you make it, all right? What it's saying is, if that is not the natural inclination of your heart, then your first spiritual work has to be, God, change my heart. Because I fear that my heart doesn't line up with what you say is blessed, is delightful. My heart doesn't line up with the things that cause joy in your heart. Parents, don't you ever wish your children would pray that prayer too? God, you got to change my heart. Because it's clear that I have problems with mom and dad because my attitude is off. They seem to not like when I stare at my phone 24 hours a day. They don't seem to like that very much. But I really like it. If I'm going to get along with my mom and dad, you got to change my heart, God. And so I want us to remember this that the blessing of God is not unconditional because he is a good father. And no good father blesses unconditionally. That is a slow and roundabout form of abuse, if you ask me. To confuse your child by saying, no matter what you do, you always get good things from me 
and from life. We don't seek the blessing out of fear of not getting it, but because we desire more than anything else to know that our Heavenly Father looks down on us and he delights in us, that he experiences joy the way a proud mother or father looks at their child and says, I am so glad you're my kid. When you look at this list, so much of of this stuff is about the interior or internal qualities of the heart and mind. So it's very easy to, to think that the Christian life is best pursued in solitude, in internal reflection, in isolation, obsessing over the condition of my heart. But Jesus follows up the Beatitudes with verses 13 through 16, where he points out that's not really the best way to live a Christian life, that the Christian faith was never designed to be a solitary, isolated pursuit. It was always best practiced in the community of other people. And when he says to us, you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world, that you, in the Greek language originally, is a very emphatic you. It carries the force of of this. It means you and you only. In other words, God's design is that his followers would be in the world the way salt is to meat and the way light is to darkness. We're meant to have a very positive, redeeming effect on the world around us, but that promise, that that calling, is not just given to everybody who self-identifies as a Christian. But what he's saying is, you and you only, those who really understand the gospel, who come to the Father in heaven with a posture and a heart that pleases him, that is blessed, and this is something we also need to just remember. Is I, I, we, I think many of us want to be used by God, but he says, if you want to really be effectively used by me, the first work is not what you do with your hands. It's the posture of your heart. That's the first spiritual work. Is my heart humble before God? Does my heart yearn for the approval and the blessing of God? Is my heart aligned in a way that causes joy in the Father's heart? And if that describes our heart as God is changing us, then the promise, the calling is this, you will be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Apart from that blessing, we will be noisemakers and crusaders and very angry people, or we will be despairing people, frustrated at the condition of the world, but we will not have the kind of impact on the world which Jesus calls us to. Would you agree with me that our world needs help? Man, if you disagree with that, you're just not paying attention, or you created a little utopia here on earth that's going to come shattering down around you at some point. I want to look at these two images Jesus gave us, but what often happens when people are preaching through this passage is they get really caught up in the little details of the analogy, what does salt do? Let's see, it has, it has like three functions in the world. They trace out all of those. I don't want to do that this morning. I want to zoom out and look at the big picture of what Jesus is really trying to say. And the bottom line is this. When he says we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, the basic message is simple. We who are Christ's followers 
are meant to live our lives out in the open in front of the world and have a very positive redeeming impact on the world around us. That's one of the core measures of whether we are living the true Christian life or not is that the effect of our lives on the world around us brings glory to God, is redeeming, is changing, is healing, that we actually touch our world for the good. First image Jesus gives us is that we are the salt of the earth. And I want you to keep in mind that in the days before refrigeration, salt was so important. And, and yes, it flavors food, but that was not the reason salt was so sought after. Imagine you went to the hard work of killing an antelope or a water buffalo or some animal, and there's tons of meat. But you're in a race against time because what happens to meat after you kill it and butcher it? Have any of you just accidentally left some meat on the counter for a couple days while you went on vacation or something? How does that smell when you come home? Have you ever thrown away meat cuttings after you cooked into a garbage can and didn't change that garbage bag right away? How's it smell after about 24 hours? Yeah, it's not good. The idea is that when he says you are the salt of the earth, the primary thing Jesus has in mind is that salt was used as a preservative agent. It was used to cure meat because if you properly cured meat and salt, and I know this looks really salty, but you you shave all that salt off before you eat it unless you're crazy. But The idea was if you cure meat properly with salt, it's crazy how much longer it will last. They still prepare meat like this in South Africa. It's called biltong meat, and if you cure it the right way, it will last almost indefinitely. Like years you could store meat like this, and still eat it before it's cooked. The reason salt was so valuable is because people understood that when you leave a piece of meat alone, its natural course is decay. It doesn't get fresher and better tasting. It certainly doesn't cook itself. It rots. It putrefies. So salt was an agent that kept the decay from happening to the meat. And that really is the idea that Jesus had in mind when he called us to be the salt of the earth. He said, this world that you live in is fallen. I know that if you're wealthy and comfortable, if you're secure and at peace, it's hard to see that that's real. But the truth of it is, the world we live in is fallen, and it can't get up. You understand that the world we live in, if you leave it alone, trends towards decay. It doesn't get better by itself. Now, a lot of people push back against that. And I get it because, like those people, I am at the heart actually an optimist. I don't like bad news. I don't like people going, oh, the world just gets worse and worse. But that's the truth. It's not the truth because I say it is or other people say it is. It's because Jesus implied it in this calling. He wouldn't call us to be salt unless, in fact, the world, the earth, which we are the salt of, does putrefy without intervention. You know, at the turn of the 20th century, when the 1800s were giving way to the 1900s, historians who write from that era report that the world was filled with this irrepressible optimism for two main reasons. I know this sounds a little like history class, but stay with me. The theory of evolution was gaining traction, and the idea was, over time, all species evolved to a higher platform. 
They get better with every generation of evolution. And so that idea had intoxicated philosophers, and they said, humanity is also evolving. That with every generation, we are becoming more enlightened, more sophisticated, better. There was also huge technological advances at the turn of the century. So when you pair those things together, the theory of evolution with technological advance, people were giddy with optimism. And the, the, the historians who write from that period say, this is not an exaggeration. It's palpable. You could taste it in the air. Everybody believed that as the 1900s were dawning, we would see in the next century the end of poverty, the end of injustice, the end of war, and the end of disease. That by the end of the 1900s, we would be living in utopia, paradise on earth. People would no longer be shooting guns. They'd be throwing flowers at each other. There would be no one starving in the streets. Every beggar would have a home. There would be no more slavery, no more robbery. People would have enough, and they would get along with each other. And there was this ecumenical spirit as nations caused, uh, formed leagues, and they said, we're not going to fight anymore. We're going to be arm in arm. The United Nations was coming into existence. People were excited that finally humanity got its act together, and we're going to be really good. And, you know, the, the truth is, I don't poo-poo on that sentiment. I, I, I would have been very caught up in all of that if I were alive in 1899. Heck, I felt like that as we were approaching Y2K. I'm like, 2000s, everything's going to get better. Flying cars. You're gonna see. And I'll tell you one thing. We have done a good number on disease. It's not perfect, but, man, I'd rather be sick today than in 1899. Amen. But that's about the main area of advance. Some other wonderful things did happen. The 1900s had some highlights. But looking back on that century, I think we can agree that the optimism was not justified. You could turn off that meat picture, by the way. <laughs> I'm getting thirsty. Do you realize there was not a day in the 20th century where there wasn't a war being fought somewhere on the earth? Not one day of global peace in the entirety of a century. Do you realize that at the end of that century, coming into today, the year 2017, slavery has not been abolished. In fact, it has been on the increase. In today's money, the cost of a slave during the height of American slavery was equivalent to about $45,000. Slaves weren't cheap in the height of American slavery. Today, the average cost of a slave globally is about $90. So not only is slavery persisting, it's on the increase and it's getting cheaper to buy a human being. 21 million human beings, by United Nations estimates, are working in forced labor in what is essentially slavery today, and a quarter of them are children. In the United States alone, every year, tens of thousands of children are trafficked into the sex industry in this country. I don't think anyone but the most Pollyannish, naive person can make the claim that left by itself, humanity is evolving into a higher form, that we get better and better all the time. I think life gets maybe a little physically safer. It certainly gets a little more convenient. Can you imagine life without smartphones? Youth group, you guys should gasp when I say things like that. (laughs) Life without smartphones. Can you imagine life pre-internet? It's more convenient, sure. But humanity's condition remains fallen, and we're taking the world down with it. In the midst of that, 
Jesus says to his followers, you are my plan to push back that rot. Now, if you're a cynic or a student of history, you know, hey, time out. You Christians don't have a monopoly on making the world better. And that's the truth. We Christians have historically contributed to a lot of the fallenness in the world. So much destruction has come into humanity in the name of Jesus. Christians have participated in the corruption, the violence, the hatred, and the greed that have driven so much of the decay and the rot in our world. I don't hide that fact for a minute. I I acknowledge openly that the historical record is certain. We cannot stand high on the hill, look down our nose and say, you worldly people are ruining the world. We're joining in it. But I can tell you this. Every Christian who has participated in in the decay of our world has never done it with the blessing of God. Yes, Christians have done a lot of damage, but when they did it, They stood in opposition to God, never with his blessing. That the hypocrisy of the church has never delighted God's heart. He has grieved and been angered over our hypocrisy as much as anyone else has. Yes, we Christians, in the name of our religion, have done great damage historically, but that does not deter the fact that Jesus said, and yet, you also are my only plan to push back the rot. Here's what he's saying. Christianity distorted will join the world in destroying everything. But Christ properly followed, Christianity properly practiced, will always bring good and redemption and healing to the world, not destruction, not evil, not bad. We can point to a thousand instances of hypocrisy and the failings of our Christian forefathers and our peers, but in every instance, we disappointed the heart of God in that failing. But when we cause God's heart to delight, when we do it right, and let's stop getting so hung up on all the bad examples and start disbelieving what Jesus said. He said, if you will really follow me, you will be the reason the rot does not take over the world. You will be the reason that violence subsides. You will be the reason that injustice is reversed. You will be the reason that hatred is mitigated. Prejudice starts to move away. You will be the reason innocent people get out of jail. You will be the reason people who are on the margins of society finally find a place called home. You'll be the reason a hungry person eats. If you do it right, you will always participate with God in pushing back the rot and beginning the process of redeeming this world. I don't disagree for a moment that Christians have caused a lot of trouble. But I also know that Jesus promised us that our calling is, if we will follow him, we will also be the agents by which he heals the world. Professor D.A. Carson says it this way. He says history bears this out. Prison reform, medical care, trade unions, the abolition of slavery, the abolition of child labor, the establishment of orphanages, reform of the penal code. In all these areas, the followers of Jesus spearheaded the drive for righteousness. The darkness was alleviated. That is not to say that no non-Christians were involved in these good works. But at the head of so many of these movements for good, 
stood a person who didn't just want to play games, but really felt the call of God on their hearts and risked a great deal to stand out in the public sector and fight against corruption. That's always been Jesus' calling on us. It's never to be the tongue-clucking observers of a broken world and go, geez, what a mess. It's always been to see it and to grieve and say, what do you call me to do? Because I cannot just stand by and watch the world rot. He tells us that we are the salt of the earth. What that means to us personally and practically is every decision we make, big or small, to do what is right in the eyes of God makes a difference. Every time you pick up a wallet and you turn it in instead of pulling the cash out first. Every time you see a lonely person sitting by themselves in the edges of a social setting and you pass up all your good friends to say, I want to pull you into this. Every time we do even one small thing that is right in the eyes of God, the promise of Jesus is you will act like salt on the earth. You will make a difference. It will help. Don't get so discouraged over the past failings of the church that we start to disbelieve God's great promise that if you will follow him, you will, in fact, make a difference and change the world. I want to look at a second image very quickly. He also says that we are the light of the world. When he says that, I don't believe he's referring to some generic darkness like there's no truth in the world around us. I think what he means specifically is the world is steeped in darkness with respect to Jesus. Jesus is a household name. Everybody, even non-Christians, love to shout it out like a swear word. I would say the majority of instances today where you hear Jesus' name exclaimed, it's as a swear, not as a praise, right? Would you agree with me? How many times do you hear people go, Jesus, thank you, God bless? It's usually the other way. It's such a familiar name. The figure of a little man nailed to a cross is jewelry now. It's a fashion statement. People know that image everywhere. And yet what he says is, though I have filled the world with my name and my image, most people still live in darkness about what I've come to do. Most people are still in the dark about the power of a relationship with me, the life-giving transformation I want to produce. And it starts even with the church. That so many who sit in the pews of the church live every day so close but not having crossed the threshold into this amazing, life-giving journey of a relationship with Jesus. And so Jesus says correctly that the world we live in is steeped in darkness regarding him. Even the people who think they know him often don't really know him. And that's not a statement of rebuke or criticism. It's a statement of yearning from a father who says, you're so close, come all the way, know who I really am. And so he says that one of our great privileges is that our lives will be like a light in the darkness, meaning where people don't understand who Jesus truly is, our lives will show them This is who he is. 
He's not just a good teacher or an inspiring moral example. He is our Savior. He is the lover of our souls. He is the one who has changed me at the root of who I am. He's the source of my hope. He's the reason I don't kill myself. He's the reason I've decided instead to live and truly live. A big part of that image of light, as he makes clear, is if a city is set on a hill, and I don't know if you've ever seen something like that, it's impossible not to see it. And nobody lights a lamp so that they could cover it with a bushel. That's just silly. The point is light is meant to be seen. And what he's really saying is church resist the temptation to withdraw into secluded conclaves and live this life apart from the world. We were always meant to live in full view of the world around us. That our lives are supposed to be his great visual aid to point people to himself. Because the truth is most people don't really know what Jesus is like. They don't understand why people get excited about going to church. Some of you are in that place right now. You're saying to yourself, why do people listen to this stuff? It's so boring. Why do some people even cry when they're singing these songs? It makes, why do some people do this when they're singing? I, I've tried it. It doesn't do anything for me. And if you're looking at that and you just don't understand, what Jesus says is, if your heart is truly moved and Jesus is truly pulsing through your life, your very existence is a pointer to him to say, I know you don't understand all this, but it's not an act. There is a God who changes us. There is a Savior who walks with us. We are not alone in the universe. Life has a purpose, and we are deeply loved. That's good news. What he says is this light is more than just a message that we speak. It's more than an opinion we have or a conviction that we hold. The light of our lives is good deeds. Apart from works, We cast serious doubt on the nature of the light that shines inside of us. I studied genetics at the doctoral level, but from the very start, the one thing we learned is the difference between genotype and phenotype. High school students who are in bio, do you know what those words are? Genotype, you're like, oh my Lord, I thought I could wait till tomorrow to go to school. So genotype is your genes, what your cells encode through DNA, and phenotype is what that produces. So I obviously have the genes for shortness. I obviously have the genes for black hair, for smaller eye openings, for lots of things that I wish were different. But there it is. The body doesn't lie. In my phenotype, you see the truth of my genotype. I cannot make a claim that I have a blue eye gene. Because look. (laughs) Okay? I can't tell you genetically I'm a tall person but trapped in a short man's body. This, all of this, speaks the truth about what's encoded inside. I think that's what Jesus is after. He's saying, don't mimic good works. Look at your works. Look at the effect you have on on others. Look at the things you say and do regularly, unprompted, without intervention. Look at the person you are day to day and the effect you cast on the world around you, and you will have a good sense of what code is driving the engine of your life. 
And if you're attentive and you're honest and self-aware, what you may find is, oh my gosh, it's not the light of Christ that drives my works. It's fear, it's anger, it's unforgiveness, it's ambition, it's insecurity, it's a lot of other things. That's really what drives almost everything I do. What Jesus is saying is, you will know the light that shines in you by looking at your works. And if your works come from Christ, then as other people see your life, they will see God in it. That's an interesting thought, that one of the ways we know what's really pulsing through our souls is the effect that our works have on others and their ability to see God. It's a good point of reflection to sit quietly and ask yourself, does my life point people to God? I don't think this is just about our witness to the outside world. I think it also has relevance inside the church. So often, if you eavesdrop on conversations among Christians at small group or during the fellowship hour at church, we hear the same advice given that would be given outside the world. A person's been mistreated. And yes, that means some response is required, but you so often hear one Christian say to another, did you call a lawyer yet? Did you call the authorities? Did you do this? Did you do that? But I think what we really need to hear more from each other is, before any other action is taken, understand that Christ knows the injustice you've endured. That he wants to take your anger from you. And yes, you have to do something to make things right. But before you go through all of that, I want to remind you that there is a God in heaven who superintends justice in this world. That there is a gospel of grace that has saved you, that you are not someone defined by this injustice. You are defined by who God says you are through Christ. I think it's important that we remember the world is constantly steeped in darkness with respect to Jesus. And it's our job, our great privilege, to remind people in the midst of all that pain and darkness, there is God still. Speak God into each other's story. Don't just give worldly advice about what to do and what not to do, but first point to Jesus. Does that make sense to you? Think about how you respond when someone shares something grave with you at a Starbucks. Just sit down. I haven't shared this with anyone, but I've got to tell you what's happening. Um, and they drop a bomb on you. Is our first impulse to share the light of moral outrage, indignation, tribal loyalty, to throw stones with them at the person who's done harm? Or is our first impulse to say, Do you, have you lost sight of Jesus in the midst of your pain? That's the first thing I want to redirect you to. And from there, we'll figure out what needs to be done. The great promise is that if we will function as salt and light, and if we will work in the world for his good, then through our lives, people will see God, and down the road, they will give him glory. That's good news, isn't it? Because if that weren't true, I'd just give up right now. I want to read for you. 
It's pretty long, but I want to read for you excerpts from an editorial that appeared in the UK. Tel- uh, it's it's the, uh, the Guardian. Are you guys familiar with The Guardian? It's a British paper. And there's a well-known, very outspoken atheist columnist named Roy Hattersley. And in 2005, he was very, very um, uh, actively observing the American response to Hurricane Katrina. Do you guys remember that? That mess? An environmental mess, a human tragedy, a political fiasco. And from the other side of the pond, Roy Hatterley is watching the American response to this terrible tragedy. And here's what he wrote after carefully observing. This is, this is crazy that, that he wrote this. Here's the opening line of his editorial. We atheists have to accept that most believers are better human beings. That got my attention right away. I'm like, what? (laughs) Listen to what he says. I'm just going to read you certain excerpts. The Salvation Army has been given a special status as provider-in-chief of American disaster relief. But its work is being augmented by all sorts of other groups. Almost all of these groups have a religious origin and character. Notable by their absence are teams from rationalist societies, free thinkers clubs, and atheist associations. The sort of people who not only scoff at religion, religion's intellectual absurdity, but also regard it as a positive force for evil. Last week, a middle-ranking officer of the Salvation Army who gave up a well-paid job to devote his life to the poor attempted to convince me that homosexuality is a mortal sin. Yet late at night on the streets of one of our great cities, that man offers friendship as well as help to the most degraded human beings who exist just outside the boundaries of our society. And he does what he believes to be his Christian duty without the slightest suggestion of disapproval. Yet, for much of his time, he is meeting needs that result from conduct he regards as intrinsically wicked. Civilized people do not believe that drug addiction and male prostitution offend against divine ordinance. But those who do are the men and women most willing to change the fetid bandages and replace the sodden sleeping bags. Good works, John Wesley insisted, are no guarantee of a place in heaven, but they are most likely to be performed by people who believe that heaven exists. The correlation is so clear that it is impossible to doubt that faith and charity go hand in hand. Here's the final excerpt. It ought to be possible to live a Christian life without being a Christian, or better still, to take Christianity a la carte. The Bible is so full of contradictions that we can accept or reject its moral advice according to taste. Yet, men and women who, like me, cannot accept the mysteries and the miracles do not go out with the Salvation Army at night. The truth may make us atheists free, but it has not made us as admirable as the average captain in the Salvation Army. I don't read that to make any sort of political statement whatsoever. I read it simply to illustrate that regardless of the position we hold on controversial issues, it is not what comes out of our mouths that grabs and arrests the attention of a watching world. It's what we nonetheless do with our hands and feet that jars them into attentiveness, that makes them wonder at how it's possible to believe something is wrong and yet pay a huge cost 
to serve and love those who are ravaged by those things. I've said it before. Please hear this. Holding an opinion is the very rudimentary start of righteousness. Moral outrage is just the very beginning preschool of righteousness. It is what we do out of that conviction that will ultimately make a difference in the world. And this is our great privilege, that if we will not just believe and feel, but we will do, God will use our lives. He will salt the earth, and he will light the world through us. That's an awesome promise. It's a great privilege. We're going to go into a time of communion. And uh, as you can tell, we set it up a little differently today. We've done this in the past. We're going to do what we call Scottish communion. And we're going to try to do this in about 10 minutes or so. And here's how we'd like for us to do it. I want to invite you to a moment of just preparing your heart in reflection. And get ready to receive these elements. The little pieces of matzo cracker there, they represent the body of Christ, broken for us. And the cup of juice you will receive represents the blood of Christ. And we do this weird ceremonial thing because Jesus said it's a way for us to remember that our hope, our salvation, comes from what he did for us when he was broken and his blood was shed for our sake. This morning, though, I want us not just to remember his salvation and sacrifice, but also remember his calling. Remember that Jesus saved us not only to save us, but through us to save many. Remember that he did not save us so that our lives would just get better, but he saved us because he loves the whole world, and he calls us to do something to salt the earth and to light the dark. Pause a moment and think about whether you are ready to receive such a call. And as you feel ready, I'm going to invite you just to simply come up to the front, sit at any of the open chairs, and receive the elements. Take them at the table. And then after a moment of reflection, you can go back and take a seat. Okay? And if you you just don't feel ready or don't feel like you're, you're moved to do it, it's not mandatory. This is a grace given from Christ to us as the church. And so just be, in, be ready. We're going to play some music. And over the next 10 minutes, just as you see an open chair, I encourage you to go and sit and receive the elements. And remember Christ in his sacrifice for you, but also his calling over you to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Can we get some music going? And I just want to invite the elders and those deacons who I invited to help with this. If one of you could pour the cup and the other could break a piece of the the cracker off, just pair up a deacon and elder at each table. So go ahead and pray, and as you feel ready, just come up to the front and receive. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.